0: Go with me to the Gospel of Mark today. I want to minister this morning on the only thing, the only thing that Jesus ever cursed. And that's not a shocker. Most of us know about... I'll just go ahead and give it to you before we read it. Most of us know about the fig tree. We know know where this message is going to go. But I'm bringing this this morning on the backside of the idea that we talked about last night that Jesus is a great physician. And we talked about that not simply in terms of natural healing, though I believe in a healing Jesus, but in terms of, of the healing of our spirit, the healing of our hurts, our emotions, literally our soul. And I really think that perhaps what we're stumbling on, um, which is probably not the right phrase, but I'll use it because I don't know that I'm firmly landing my feet anywhere as much as wrestling some things in my spirit and hopefully wrestle, you'll wrestle them with me and but one of the things maybe we're stumbling on is how to, how to hit that elusive word balance that people want to use with grace. You know, people ask, you guys need to balance that out. That's why they say things like, you should preach something other than the love and grace of God. I like your answer. What, like, what do you recommend? Uh, what's the first thing I ought to preach if we're going to let go of the love and grace of God? Um, that's why like I always feel like if people, if you preach too much grace, that's like preaching too much Jesus. I'm not really sure what it would look like to preach too much Jesus. Like they go down there and that's all they talk about is Jesus. Um, but I, 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 I do think that people are on to something when they talk about needing balance because what they're doing is they're seeing the judicial side of the redemptive plan of God. And the judicial side is, there's no condemnation. You are justified. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Forgiveness is absolute. Jesus will not die twice. Once for all sacrifice. And the grace of God is a reality that goes to work in your life, constantly cleansing you. These are all, these are all New Testament terms that are couched in the judicial. And we see that, and yet we know we got problems. And so how we deal with those a lot of times is go, well, don't worry about your problems. Just focus on Jesus. Let Jesus focus on your problems. And we watch then as people sometimes take steps away from the Jesus that we are preaching and lean into the pains and lean into the issues and just say, well, if God don't take, change me, you know, they won't be changed and sort of leave it at that. And, and in a way, I wonder if we need a resurgence or maybe even for the first time the sun to rise on the medicinal side of the gospel, not just the judicial, so that it is not just that you're not guilty that you're not, and that you are justified, but it is that you have a great physician who is going to work on whatever it is that's wounded you, whatever it is that pains you. And that Jesus, having finished the work judicially, is working in us all the time. And I think maybe it's Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Given... Rest. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. You don't have to pay for it. Come to Jesus. He'll give you rest. That's rest given. Maybe that's judicial rest. Case closed. Come to me. Case closed. Not guilty. Come to me. Case closed. No condemnation. Come to me. Case closed. Justified. Come to me. Case closed. Forgiven. Case closed. No appeal. No record keeping. Throw the case out. Right? But you get to keep the paperwork so that you always know you're not guilty, so that you can show it off. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give that to you. You can have you can have your the finished work court case. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me and you shall find rest for your soul. So which is it? Is it come unto me and you're given rest, or take my yoke upon you and you'll find rest? And the reality is, is that it's both. Because when you come to Jesus, you get the judicial salvation. I am redeemed. I am forgiven. I am not condemned. I am righteous. I I am this once and for all. But there's a rest I need to find in my soul, the seat of my emotions, the place that I hurt. And Jesus needs to go to work on that. And the only way that I'm going to find that kind of rest is to watch Jesus work and participate with Him and hold His hand and let Him do the work in me. So all the way to Calvary, Jesus is in physician mode. Every person He comes upon, He's not only healing the sicknesses, He's healing them of all of the things that stand in the way between them and God. And we reach a climactic moment on the way to Passion Friday, on Holy Monday, the final week of Jesus' time on the earth in His first advent. And on that Holy Monday, Jesus, and I'll, I'll read from Mark chapter 11, verse 11, this actually happens on Sunday afternoon in verse 11. He entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything. This is Mark eleven eleven. When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Don't overlook the phrase that Jesus looked around at everything and then went out. Because he comes into the temple, he takes a look at what he sees, and he leaves. And like most of us, he takes something in and then he sleeps on it. So Sunday night, he sleeps on what he saw Sunday afternoon. And as he sleeps, I think he has a fitful night of sleep, if he sleeps at all. Because in verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, and Bethany is just a not, a, not quite a stone's throw, but it's not a far trek down through Gethsemane, across the Kidron Valley, and into the eastern side of Jerusalem. And right there, when you enter from the eastern side, is the Temple Mount. And so Jesus comes straight across the valley and walks into that temple on Monday morning. Remember, He left on Sunday afternoon. He had looked around and seen something that I think causes Him a fitful night's sleep because of the way He responds on Monday morning. And on Monday morning, He comes in from Bethany, and He's hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it and when he came to it he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. He said to it may no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples heard it. Now maybe Jesus just doesn't know horticulture real well and he's not familiar with what time of year figs grow and he's on his way across the valley and he goes, I'm hungry, there's a fig tree. And maybe the guys that do know kind of elbow each other and go, this is going to be funny because there's no figs. And you know, he, poor Jesus, he knows carpentry, but he don't know trees. <laughs> right? And so Jesus goes over to the fig tree and can't find figs and then gets mad and curses the fig tree. Maybe, maybe that's the story. I think you know that that's not the story. <laughs> I don't know what Jesus knew in the natural realm that was outside of what he should know in the natural realm. I don't know. I know that Jesus was a man and that Jesus was God. And I know that men have limited knowledge. So I'm not here to tell you that Jesus could do advanced calculus. But I do know that according to Mark's version of the gospel, it's not the season for figs and I think Jesus knows it. Okay? He knows it's not the season for figs. His belly's rumbling and he wants something to eat. And so Jesus is about to add a visual illustration to what his day is going to look like because he's about to do something that is going to be catastrophic to the religious mind of his disciples. And to lead them in to what looks like is going to be a catastrophic Monday, he takes a sidestep over to a tree that has very deep roots in their Judaism. Because the fig tree runs in their collective spiritual consciousness all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis. It's in their literal origin story that their first father and mother, Adam and Eve, ate from a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And having ate from the tree, the scales fall off of their eyes. They realize that they are naked. And their first move is to go to a nearby fig tree And pull fig leaves off of that tree and fashion for themselves aprons to hide themselves from themselves. Because that's what fig leaves in the garden were for. I know this because Adam and Eve have seen one another for the first time today. Really. They've seen what they're seeing for the first time and so they hide from themselves and they hide from each other. And then to hide from God, they go hide in the bushes. They're not hiding from God with the fig leaves. If you want to hide from God, you go to the bushes. They hide from themselves, from the fig with the fig leaves, and they hide the reality from each other. It's not fig season, so Jesus is intentionally giving an illustrated sermon. And there might have been a touch of humor to the move by Jesus. Who knows it's not fig season? I'm not even sure he doesn't say to them. That he knows it's not fig season and yet when he goes to the tree and there are no figs it says may you never produce fruit again and then his disciples heard it and this is jesus literally cursing the tree that is supposed to produce figs in its season and i used to preach this and say that you are (laughs) i would i would i'm amazed now how much i preached I interpolated scripture into scripture. So I didn't care anything for context. I just make the Bible say what I needed it to say for that sermon. Anybody ever hear preaching like that? Anybody ever do preaching like that? (laughs) And so I used to preach this and go, you know what? In Christ, your fruit's always in season. There's never a moment where you're not fruit producing. So Jesus goes over to the fig tree even though it's out of season because in Christ you're always supposed to be in season. And so I say to you, you better be producing the fruit of the kingdom lest Jesus come and curse you with a curse. Man, you can get people to really shout amen that stuff too. I don't know why we're so excited about it. It's terrible news. We come to the church for the gospel, which is good news. We get bad news, we scream about it. Like, I come to hear good news, you give me bad news, I'm pumped for bad news. But it's kind of the way we are, because we really like bad news. And so, man, you could get people all fired up about that, and it didn't even make sense. Jesus goes to a tree that's out of season, demands figs, curses it when it doesn't have any, and I'm preaching to you that you're supposed to always be in season, even if it's not the season. (laughs) And the truth is, is that you don't make fruit grow. Like, what are you going to do to make fruit grow? If I get up here today and preach to you the fruit of the Spirit, what are you going to do to make goodness and peace flow out of you. How do you squeeze apples out of an apple tree? You don't, you let it grow. And so the fruit of the spirit is not the fruit of you. It's the fruit of the spirit, spirit in you. And those are the things coming out. So no, let me ease your fears. This is not a sermon about Jesus is going to curse you if you're not producing. All right. Let's just get rid of that out of the, out of the gate. This is not Jesus is out to get you. Never be out of season. Boy, we even, I even used to take that over into the pulpit. We go, you know, the Bible says, preachers, you're supposed to be instant in season and out of season. That means you've got to be producing. That, that meant you're supposed to preach every time they ask you, even if you're not ready. And I heard a few of those sermons. And I wish they'd have just stayed out of season. You know, just, just admit you're out of season, don't preach. That was bad news. But no, what Jesus is doing is preparing for what's coming up later in the day because look at the 15th verse. Now this is the same day because Mark's giving you some chronological stuff. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, is it not written my house should be called a house of prayer For all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. When the chief priests and scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So Jesus comes in on Sunday, sees something that bothers him in the temple, leaves, goes to Bethany, sleeps, and comes back the next day having not rested well, because whatever it was he saw on Sunday, he needs to go do something about it on Monday. And on his way to the temple, knowing that what he's about to do is going to be so shocking. In fact, Mark uses the phrase spellbound. It's going to be so spellbounding that he needs to give his disciples a chance to take it in. And so he stops and curses a fig tree on his way in, and then walks straight into the temple, fashions, whips, and cords, and begins to knock over the money changers' tables. And Mark even tells you, even those who sold doves, which is not just a throw-in phrase, but a very specific phrase. You see, you could not take Roman coin into the temple because it had the image of Caesar on it, and the Jews believed that if you brought anything with an image on it, you were bringing in a graven image, and thus you were breaking the Ten Commandments. And therefore, you were not allowed to use foreign coin to purchase anything on temple grounds. Now, the temple was a massive edifice. Don't think of it as simply a room. In fact, the general public never went in the temple. They never actually went in what we call the holy place. They never actually went all the way to the altar. They never went all the way inside to the incense and the showbread. And they certainly never went into the holy place. But they did have courtyards surrounding the temple that they considered the temple of the Most High God. In fact, Judaism considered the temple mount to be heaven on earth. When they thought of heaven on earth or heaven and earth, they thought of their place and their people. This is why the statements, heaven and earth pass away, were not statements about the cosmos passing away or the planet passing away, but a system in which they were heaven on earth passing away. And so Jesus walks into the courtyard of the temple and sees on Sunday what he knocks over on Monday which is the fact that the chief priests controlled the money exchange on temple grounds. And so what had happened is that the temple minted their own coin. It did not have superscription on it. It did not have faces on it so that it lined up with Ten Commandments. But while trying to line up with Ten Commandments, they set the exchange rate. So when you brought your Roman coin in to buy a turtle dove or a pigeon or a lamb or a goat or a bullock because that was the sacrificial offering. Notice, by the way, we don't hear anything about sheeps, goats, or bullocks in this story. We only hear about doves. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. So you brought your Roman coin in which was not allowed on temple grounds and there was a money changers stand on your way into the temple through all of the various entrances to the temple and the chief priest set the exchange rate so they told you how much your coin was worth. How do you think that went over? And since they set the exchange rate and they were the priests between you and God it's best to pay it because you don't have any access to God. They are your access to God. This whole system is your access to God. This killing of animals is your access to God. That man is your access to God. That building over there is your access to God. This whole thing. And so we, we, the monetization of the access to God disproportionately, and this always happens, disproportionately affected the poor. Jesus doesn't come in and knock over the lamb's table, or the goat table, or the bullet table. He goes straight to where they're selling birds. And you know who bought the birds? The poorest people. God's system was so that everyone had equal financial access to the sacrificial system under the temple system. And so doves and pigeons were for those that had not much and could buy those with just a few coins. They must have had such exorbitant prices that when Jesus walks in to knock over the tables, He starts at the bird table. Because that's the one that on Sunday afternoon when He watched the poor come in with their coins that they had saved. And they tried to buy a dove so they could offer it as a sacrifice on Passover week. And then they looked at the exchange rate and it was so outlandish they couldn't afford a bird. And Jesus knows that the reason we're doing this with birds is because you can go out and catch them in the field. And this guy made a journey where he spent everything he had. He didn't have time to stop and and get a bird out in the field. He made a journey into Jerusalem on Passover with everything he had. And he lays it on the table. And apparently not enough money there to pay for the bird. And Jesus goes home and doesn't sleep well that night. And on his way back in the next day, he stops off at a fig tree and curses it. And then walks into the temple and does the same thing. Oh, I know he doesn't hold his hands up over the temple and curse it. But by building a whip and knocking over the money changer's table, he reaches back into the Jeremiah prophecies. And he grabs an old ancient Jeremiah prophecy and says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. This is supposed to be equal access for all. And yet you've made it to where people can't afford to come to the father. And they stand here with everything they have. And everything they have is what my dad's asking for. And not even everything they have is enough to get them in through the system of sacrifice. Because you know what? Everything you have is never enough in the system of sacrifice. You'll never be able to afford to pay God, to pay religion, to pay for grace or favor. You'll never be able to afford forgiveness. What could you possibly offer to God for your own sins or for your own failures. And so Jesus looks at a physical temple with a physical priesthood using physical coin and physical sacrifice and knocks over the tables and says, No more. And on that Olivet week, that next day's the Olivet discourse, Jesus then condemns the temple to oblivion and says, Not one stone's going to be left unturned in this temple. And this house is left to the people that own it desolate. They can have it. He even calls it your temple, not my father's temple. On Monday, it's my father's house. By Tuesday, it's your temple. Watch the gospel account. My father's house on Monday. By Tuesday, your temple, left to you desolate. My dad doesn't live in this. My father doesn't belong in a system where people can't get in because they don't have enough. My father doesn't sponsor a system because you were born on the wrong side of the tracks or your dad doesn't know the right congressman or, or you don't have enough money or you don't speak the right language or you weren't born into the right culture or you don't identify properly. My father doesn't operate a system where you have to come and be something else and pay something else and achieve something else in order to get an audience with God. And Jesus says, it was dad's house yesterday, but it's your house now. And he goes, how do you like your house without dad living here? And he goes, your house, left to you desolate. Not one stone's going to be left unturned. He said, this, this whole thing's coming down. In John 2, at the same moment when he knocks the tables over, which is probably out of chronological order, but John drops it in in John 2, right after the wedding of Cana. Phenomenal little, I don't have time to deal with why that might land right there. We've got a whole series on John back there. But he drops that in right there in John 2 of knocking over the temple. And he looks at the crowd then and says, knock this temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it. And they think he means the actual temple. But of course Jesus is saying this temple doesn't work anymore because it excludes people. I'm going to build one that includes people. I bemoan the fact that we've let ideologies have good terms and we can't even use them in the New Covenant churches anymore because we're so politicized. Inclusivity. Inclusive say that word among Christians, they freak out because they're afraid you're about to fly a rainbow flag or you're about to talk about who gets in, whether they ask for forgiveness or not. I think the reality is we need to take words back that matter. Grace is the inclusive love of God. I love the rousing amount of support I got for I'll say it again. Grace is the inclusive love of God. He includes the family of man in it. It's not the exclusive love of God, is it? If it's not the inclusive love of God, where do you want to land? Is it the exclusive love of God? Does he get to exclude the people that can't afford the dove? Because there's a lot of people that can't afford the dove because we made the price too high. The exchange rate's out of hand, man. They can't pay that price. How much more do you want out of me? What do you want to squeeze out of me? You already taking my money, you taking my time. You want to take my life? You want to take my dreams? You want to take my hopes? You want to take my passions? You want to take my talents? What else do you want from me in order for me to get to go be with Jesus someday when I die? Because if I do this much longer, I'm going quicker. So Jesus knocks over the tables and he doesn't pick them back up. And listen, from a practical standpoint, sometimes you got to knock tables over. But I choose in this one moment, I always want to be like Jesus in the Gospels, but there's one moment in the Gospels when I want to be like the disciples and this is it. I'll watch Jesus knock over tables. I'm not a table knocker over. See, I don't think we qualify for knowing what tables to knock over. We do qualify to watch Jesus knock them over. This is the one moment where I don't want to be Jesus, because then I've got to pick what tables to knock over. I'll knock the wrong one over, I promise. When I get in the table knocking over, I've done it. You get up and go, I'm going to knock some tables over. And I see some junk going on in this church, and I'll start knocking tables over and realize, uh-oh, that was a good table, and I missed that really terrible table over there (laughs) because I'm thinking through the lens of my own anger, my own malice, my own pain, my own vengeance, and I don't know what table. So I choose to just stand there like Peter, James, and John uh, and just be quiet and watch Jesus knock over tables. My participation is learning that there should be nothing, nothing in the way between people and God. And that's what Jesus comes to do is ensure that there's nothing in the way. I think the fig tree and the temple cleansing are two stories that inform one another. The cursing of the fig tree is physically what Jesus is about to do to a temple, not producing the fruit of temples. So he curses a fig tree even though it's out of season because it's an illustration for Jesus. He's not mad at that fig tree. He's not mad at fig trees. But the fig tree comes to represent the temple which is not producing the fruit of its, of its founder. It is not an open door for anyone that wants to come in. It has closed its doors. It's raised its prices. And Jesus curses the fig tree because it produces no fruit as an illustration of what he's about to do to the temple, which is a place that produces no fruit. And it literally is a place where it never goes out a season to produce fruit. Like it never goes out a season to have access to God. I hope you realize you do not serve a seasonal God under the new covenant. In other words... God, let, let me just, expo- just try to land on this. God, who in various times and various ways, spoken to us in the past by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. His Son's the express image of His glory hear how that, that's hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 god in the past spoke to us in various times and in various ways sometimes we heard him sometimes we didn't sometimes we had a dry season is god talking i don't know do you hear god let's go see if the prophet hears from god let's go talk to the priest maybe they're hearing from god that's the whole story of the old testament god who in times past in various ways spoken to us by the prophets half now in these days spoken unto us by his son God no longer, there's no breaks. There's not a season of God's just not talking right now. Oh, yes, he is. And the name is Jesus. Want to hear from God? Go listen to Jesus. When people tell me they, they don't know how to hear from God, I know they're not watching Jesus. Watching Jesus is hearing from God. How would God, what's God think about what's going on today? Just go find out what Jesus did when he faced what's going on today. And he faces it. And as He faces it, He shows you the heartbeat of His Father. And so Jesus, who is the sound of His Father's voice, curses the tree that brings forth no fruit. Now, the connection for His audience goes all the way back to those fig leaves. Let's go back to Adam and Eve back there. All right, Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you notice that it's a tree that parses out the differences. Up until this moment, there was complete unity in the garden. Unity with God and His creation. God reaches down into the dirt and pulls man up out of the ground. I always like to imagine it this way. I don't know. My way is not exclusive, but this helps me. God takes His hand, He reaches down into the dirt, and He pulls a man up out of the ground, and He shapes him to look like Himself, Adam. That's man of the dirt, by the way. That's what that means in the Hebrew. It's just a man of the dirt. But God's not of the dirt. God creates the dirt, therefore the dirt is of God, but God's not of the dirt. So God has to put himself into the dirt. And so the Bible says he breathes into Adam, and Adam becomes a living soul. Because in that moment, Adam takes on the the characteristics of the divine. These are not the characteristics of the divine. This is the characteristic of the divine. So this and this characteristics of the life-giving soul of God. He doesn't put that in dogs, cats, tigers, lions, or bears. They breathe, they move, they respond, they live by instinct. They don't consider their past. They don't learn from it. They don't save for their future. That's one difference among 10,000 differences. That's just a quick and easy one. Complete Unity. God shows up, he and Adam talk in the cool of the day. There's absolutely no separation with God and Adam. God creates Adam with one deficiency. (laughs) One deficiency. And by the way, God called Adam very good and yet created him with the deficiency of having, he needed somebody to share his life with. Because what the Genesis story is trying to tell you early on is you can't do this by yourself. And this is not... A, a, a statement of needing that you'll be incomplete if you don't get married. But it is a statement that man is incomplete by himself and that we need the community of, of humanity. So we don't live this as a solo artist. We're not a people in isolation. And so God tries to give him lions, tigers, and bears as a help me, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Instead, he puts Adam to sleep and pulls from his own side, Eve, because... That which completes him is, com- is perfect unity. So there's no separation from Adam and Eve. They're two, dif- they're two different physical bodies, but they're birthed from the- they're cut from the same cloth. So by the time you get to Genesis 3, everything is in unity. Adam's and in- Adam's tending the garden God pulled him out of. So when he takes care of the animals and the plants, he does it because they hold his, they're part of him. He's part of the family that's on the earth. When he loves his wife, he's loving an extension of himself. When he talks to his God, he's talking to an extension of himself. You see, all of these things are unity. This is the message Genesis 1 and 2 is showing. And then comes Genesis 3. When they eat from the knowledge of good and evilness, and the first time there's any parsing. Good and evil. There's not been any parsing in the garden. We don't have differences. We don't have disunities. And so knowledge enters, and it's not just that knowledge enters and then we live by our conscience. We've landed on that, and that's one answer. But it might not be the answer that the Hebrew people saw when they read that story. And and that might be because they didn't live by their conscience as the people of Judaism. They lived by the word of the law. So why would they assume that living by conscience was it when they had the word of the law to live by? But what they did see was that in that moment, there was a disunity from unity to disunity, from seeing yourself as the very good creation to becoming internally judgmental and self-responsible. So you went from being who God wants you to be to, be, to trying to be what you hope God wants you to be. And that's not just living by conscience, but what you knew you needed to do in that moment was fig leaf cover-up which starts a trend of fig leaf (laughs) cover-up so that man is constantly covering up guilt covering up shame seeing differences in himself and others as divisions between good and evil let me say that again this is our great crime We see differences between ourselves and others as the dividing line between good and evil. And guess which side you're on? Every time. The difference between us is a division. It need not be a division, it could simply be a difference. But we're in a space, even now, where we can't have disagreements without having divisions. The moment we disagree with somebody, we divide from them. Because we feel like if we're around people we disagree with, it'll rub off on us. What if I start thinking like them and they're wrong? And I know I'm going to be wrong. I want to walk in the truth. And they're wrong and they're obviously wrong. And if I talk to them long enough and they get me confused and they're the devil. That's the serpent talking. We accuse everybody that we disagree with that makes a cogent point. They're the serpent. You ever ever recognize that? Like somebody disagrees and they go, what about this? We go, oh, I never thought about that. That must be the devil. (laughs) Only the devil would bring that up. Where'd we get that? Genesis 3. And what do we do about it? We cover ourselves in fig leaves so we look like the other people in fig leaves. And we've got our fig leaf cults. And we do this. This is natural. This is like our baseline. This is how we live our lives. And we've lived our lives this way for so long that we don't realize a lot of times how much of our lives are in darkness. How much of our lives are cover-ups for pain and fear and shame and fright and ignorance. And to just put another fig leaf on so nobody sees it. If I put enough fig leaves on and praise the Lord at the same time, nobody will realize I got any problems. And we go, well, now I found grace. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I do have the identity of God in Christ, but the fig leaves are still there because there's a lot of stuff undealt with a lot of stuff, not producing a lot of stuff. That's a cavern in our soul and it's pain and it's keeping us isolated from God. It's not isolating God from us because when you put your fig leaf apron on, it's you that goes and hide in the bushes. God shows up because in Genesis, the Bible says, and God showed up to speak with Adam in the cool of the day. He had done this every day and God shows up to have his appointment with Adam, not to beat Adam up, but to talk to Adam because his voice makes the difference. If Adam had just shown up even in his fig leaves without hiding, it would have been the first step toward union. But Because he hid, God has to go on a rescue mission. And by the time Jesus comes, he's on the earth in a physical manifestation of God's rescue mission. He's not hunting men down to declare them guilty. He's hunting people down who are sick so that he can go to work healing them. Now, we need Paul's gospel. We need Paul's judicial demands. Paul helps us. Romans and Galatians help us because Paul's a legalist at heart. Hope you realize this. Paul's a legalist. He knows it. He fights against it every letter he writes. It's why he speaks so sternly against Saul. There was Saul and I'm Paul. And I've learned that everything Saul had is dung. That's what Paul says to the Philippians. But what do you do with dung? Well, you don't hang out with it but you use it to fertilize your future because that's what it'll do. And so Paul uses Saul as fertilizer for the new Paul to go, here's the law and what it did and what it'll do. And I'm going to take all of that and I'm going to couch it in better language. and I'm going to show you how you're free from it. And so we need Paul because we're legalist minded people. And Paul frees us from the legalist mindset. But the gospel walked out in Jesus is less about legalists. And more about a rescue mission for people in pain. He sees the cancer in your life and he goes to work on it. And he reaches his hand in there and he grabs hold of that. And he holds your hand while he pulls that thing out that we need to let go of. It's why Mark 9 closes with, all of us shall be salted by fire. All of us. You know what that verse follows? If your eye offends, you pluck it out. It'd be better to go into eternity with one eye than to go into hellfire with two eyes. If your hand offends you, cut it off. It'd be better to go into life with one hand than to go into hellfire with two hands. If your foot offends you, cut it off. It'd be better to go into life with one foot than to go into hellfire with two feet. But all of you shall be salted by fire. We don't ever quote that part. In other words, those verses are not about going to a cosmic heaven and a cosmic hell. Those verses are about avoiding the hell that's wanting to attack you right now and realizing that the only way you're going to make it through is to allow the one who steps into the furnace to step in with you. And if you'll allow the one to step into the furnace who steps in with you, the fire will burn off of you whatever needs to burn off of you. The physician will go to work on whatever tumors he finds. And so Christ is doing the work. So the fig tree becomes representative of a temple that has no fruit. And so Jesus curses the fig tree in the way that he has cursed the fig leaves of our lives. Whatever I put on to define me in front of God, the only thing Jesus ever cursed is the false version of Paul White. It's the false version of you. That he curses. That he can have no party with. I believe in the wrath of God. I just don't believe it the way some people believe it. What I mean by that is some people think the wrath of God is a fuming God with fire in his eyes and smoke coming out of his nostrils in retributive violence, that he's getting really mad and he's going to pay you back what you deserve. I believe the wrath of God cannot be separated from the love of God because God is not wrath, God is love. Right? We're in the Word, right? There's no scripture that says God is wrath. But there's not only scripture that says God is love, there's a whole Jesus life that shows you God is love. And the only thing Jesus ever knocked over with a stick was a table, not a person. And the only thing Jesus ever cursed was a tree, not a kid. And that's what we've got God, the wrathful God doing, is knocking over people and killing kids. Judging people for sin, knocking people out that, that don't pay their tithes burning down villages where people pass bad legislation, sending earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and killing innocent people because a couple of politicians made a bad decision in, in the Congress halls. And so God's got to come in and kill 78,000 people with a tsunami because that's how God shows people that He's boss. Wrong. That doesn't look like Jesus. If it doesn't look like Jesus, it can't look like God because Jesus is the express image of the Father. He's everything God ever was. He's everything God ever is. And He's everything God will ever be. But I do believe in the wrath of God because I believe in love. And I know that my love has shaped my kids. Not through vengeful knocking stuff out, but through a chastisement that has been for the betterment of their next step, not for the punishment of their last one. And I think we're so in tune with the anger and the wrath Because we're kind of, many of us have treated the gospel like we feel about other people's kids. We never treat the gospel about how we feel about our kids. We always treat the gospel about how we feel about other people's kids. Let me use it, Let let me work on this for a second. All right? What I mean by that is, I can watch your kids and think, look at those snots. They deserve to get their bottoms busted. And I might be right. Right? And I can see how bad of a parent you are and how terrible your kids are and what bad decisions went into this and how this is gonna lead them down the road to ruin. And man, somebody needs to get in here and take care of these kids because kids today are out of control. And man, you can go into a spiral. None of them wanna work. Their face is always in their phone. These kids are all lazy. They don't do it like they did in my day. Man, we love to get on that. That feels good, don't it? Just going after kids, man, these bunch of lazy bums. But we have so much love, patience, long-suffering, and affection for our cute little stinkers. (laughs) They're pretty, they're beautiful, they're sweet, they're kind. Oh, they didn't mean that. You just don't know them like we do. They just, you got to get to know them. Right? Why do we do that? Because we're in love with them. We're in love with them. I mean, we're straight up smitten. You saw that kid and you're, you're ruined, man. You are. You're done. Your money's no longer yours. Your time, you're glad about it. Your time's no longer yours. Your future's no longer yours. And you're not mad. You wouldn't be mad. They're your kid. There's not a second you lose on them that you go, man, that was a waste of time. I'm never getting that back. No. You stand in line for roller coasters you don't want to ride. You watch movies you hate. You buy food you can't stand. And you do it because you love the little stinker. And I'm watching you from the outside going, Waste of money, waste of time. Why are you doing that to them? But that's how we treat the gospel. And it's because we pitch the gospel people were mad at, not people were in love with. And if we just realize that when God looks at them, they're all his, they just have a cancer. And you don't blame people with cancer for cancer. If you know how to cure it, you go to work. You don't ask them their resume or how much they can pay. You just go to work. It's your job. You got the cure. You would be the devil if you didn't help them. And there's your definition of Satan. And that's why Jesus looks at Peter and says, Satan, get thee behind me. Because Peter had just stepped in front of Jesus going to the cross because the Christ he wanted carries a sword, not gets killed by one. And Jesus goes, that's the gospel that people are going to try to preach when I'm gone. And I rebuke that. It doesn't work. The only thing Jesus ever curses is the fig tree because Jesus cursed it to remove it so that you would never put fig leaves on again. You would never again feel a separation. Now go back to the story in Matthew 11 and go to verse 20 because I want to take you to Tuesday morning. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and do not doubt in your heart, but believe what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Peter recognizes that the fig tree from yesterday has been cursed. He realizes that he watched Jesus cleanse the temple yesterday. Look, the fig tree has... it's It's a physical representation of what you did to those doves' tables yesterday. They start to make the connection. Mark's gospel is brilliant with this. He's the one gospel writer that sandwiches those three stories. Two pieces of bread are the fig tree and the meat in the middle is the cleansing of the temple. Mark does this on purpose to show you that Jesus is intentionally using the cursing of the fig tree as a representation. Take the temple down as the thing that's obscured your vision before God. The temple systems religion, self, performance, man has stood in between you and God and they are the fig leaves. And if you put them on to try and look good in front of God, you put on a system that cannot produce fruit. Okay. So your performance cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit. Your effort cannot produce the goodness of God's grace. And, and that is a sickness Jesus came to deal with by cursing the one thing that stands in our way. And so never again allow the fig leaf to define you. This is a matter of coming to our senses and realizing who we are, not who we're not. Because the fig leaves represent who we're not. Now I don't know about you, but I've put on my own set of fig leaves before. Maybe because I didn't want to deal with what I am. Maybe because I didn't want to deal with my selfishness or my greed. I just wanted to say I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. I didn't want to deal with the fact that I didn't love people. I just wanted to have platitudes like, well, if I just knew how much Jesus loved me, I'd love them. And then that could get me off the hook of not loving them because I'd go, well, I just don't know how much Jesus loves me yet. <laughs> it, it, someday I'll know how much Jesus loves me and then I'll love people. But I don't know how much Jesus loves me yet. Well, I don't know how much Jesus loves me. I'll love people and, and, and instead of actually loving people. Yeah. You see the difference there? Yeah. So instead of actually loving people, I just had theology. That's fig leaves. Yeah. That's grab some stuff and cover up the fact That maybe the reason you don't love them is because of this or this or this or this or this. And that's a you fault. That's not a them fault. That's you. So you can can deal with that. Or you can put some fig leaves over it. Or you can just ignore it and quote some scriptures. That'll work. Let's just ignore it and quote scriptures. And then we'll be okay. And Jesus says it'll never produce fruit. It's just in the way. It's costing you way more. The, The juice ain't worth the squeeze, baby. You can't get out of it what you're putting into it. You just can't do it. It isn't changing your life. So we've got to come to our senses and realize who our father is, but we got to get up and get out of that pig pen and go home. That's the great part. There's, there's a great part and a terrible part about the prodigal son story. And the great part is that the prodigal son smells like slop and is covered in mud. And he's doing everything wrong. And he's wasted his father's substance on riotous living and all that good King James talk. And then he came to his senses. Bible says. he came to his senses and said, I believe I'll go home. That's a good idea. I believe I'll go home. And when he's on his way home, his dad meets him at the end of the lane because his dad's never not been at the end of the lane. I think dad drags a chair every day down to the end of the lane and sets it up next to the mailbox and waits on his kid to come home. Because that's how much he loves him. That's what you'd do for your kid. And the kid came to his senses and he came home. The tragedy of the prodigal son is that dad's got a kid at home who never comes to his senses. The kid at home that never comes to his senses only knows how to judge. He only knows how to reject. He only knows how to celebrate death, not life. And he's infuriated that the father takes the younger brother back. There's one person in the story in which the story ends with them wearing fig leaves. And it's the elder brother. He's still hiding himself behind. None of which he hides behind actually defines him. But he keeps hiding behind things that are not his. And his dad tries to talk him off the ledge. And the tragedy of the prodigal son is that it ends without us knowing whether or not the kid stepped back from the ledge. Dad goes, son, all I ever had was yours. You didn't have to do any of this stuff. Your brother was dead. He's alive. He was lost. He's found. Can't we rejoice that he was one thing, but he's another thing now? Can't we rejoice in the beauty of the grace and allow this to go to work? Paul would write to the Galatians and say, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. For as it is written... Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. So Paul is the one writer in the New Testament that reaches back to the Deuteronomy canon, grabs that little obscure verse from Deuteronomy 20 or 21 and and uses it as a way of framing Jesus as the cursed one, not so that we will see that God cursed and abandoned Jesus, but so that we will see that God only cursed the things that don't represent what we really are. And having nailed those things to the cross, Jesus steps into the snake roll, like we talked about last night, steps into the snake roll on the pole and dies for us by taking into him the poison of everything that curses us. So Christ curses the one thing, the only thing, that stands in our way from knowing we are not isolated. We are not separated. We are not divided. There is a unity between us and the love of our Father. Now, if Christ Christ has cursed it, it cannot live again. There will never be productivity out of our separation between us and God. And any separation between you and God is an illusion. Brought on by your own theology, brought on by religion, brought on by bad teaching, bad preaching. It's an, it's an illusion that what you do separates you from the Father. The, nothing separates you from the Father, but you running from the Father. And even then, He runs down the lane to meet you and is waiting for whenever you want to come back. Any isolation I've had has been on my part, not on God's. It's been me avoiding the light of His love. I do believe, and I believe this now more than ever before, this has been the freshest of revelations in my heart, is that what God is doing with His love is burning out of me everything that is not real about me. Everything untrue about who I really am is on the chopping block. Because everything untrue about who I really am is a fig leaf. Have you ever seen a fig leaf? They're big. You go to the botanical gardens and you see a fig tree. And I mean, they're these big velvety looking things. They're about this tall and this wide. But there's something pretty amazing about a fig leaf. If you snip the fig leaf from off the tree, separate it from its life source, it doesn't just die. It shrivels to about maybe the size of your hand if it was fully grown shrivels up and dies. So there's a bit of comedy in Genesis 3. The comedy is that Adam picks the fig leaf that even if he thinks can cover him, can't cover him for long. <laughs> that's, that's the part of the comedy. of That's the comedy of Jesus going to a tree that's not got figs and saying, oh, I want figs! And they all laugh. But there's more than just the comedy of it. It's to show you that even if it covers you in front of your friend or your family or your spouse or your self. It doesn't cover for long because there's nothing, nothing that can separate the real you from the father. And he loves the real you. It's the real you he wants. And you go, yeah, but there's some of this stuff that's hurts and pains and fears and problems. That's the you I want. That's the you I died for. That's the you I'm saving. That's the you I want to talk to. That's the you I want to heal. That's the you I'm in love with. Not this fake version you put on a show for me, jump up and down, do your thing, ask me how high. I just want to spend time with you. I just want to know you. What I'm praying is that God give us this love for His creation. Give us that love for His creation to where we stop trying to qualify them for the love of God and we receive them just as they are. We used to sing a song at the end of the sermon when I was a kid called Just As I Am Without One Plea, But That Thy Blood Was Shed For Me. Just As I Am. We sing it and I don't know that we ever really believed it. Because we wouldn't even tell God the truth when we went into prayer. And we certainly didn't want people just as they were especially when you're meeting them at the door, making sure they got a tie if they didn't come in one or making sure they know that um, that ain't going to go over here. I, I realize that there are standards, there are ways we have to do things, and we live in a society. I, I'm even actually a proponent of shame. I'm just not a proponent of spiritual shame. I'm a proponent of the kind of shame keeps you from going naked in public. Right? Don't you, don't you like societal shame? I do a little bit. I mean, because if there was no societal shame, who knows what you'd see. When you see things, it's because you found someone with no shame. (laughs) Right? You go, you could use a little shame right now. Or a bigger fig leaf. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We love you, but we know more importantly, you love us. Lord, these are the kind of messages that a lot of times I know that you're, you're stirring in me and I don't wait around for you to show me. I don't always wait around for you to show me the landing strip for the plane. Like I know what you're saying to me, but I don't necessarily know how to land it to your kids. So Father, I admit today that I don't know how to drive this home to your kids. Not just the kids in this room, but the kids watching. I don't know how to drive it home. What I do know is that you never cursed anything else, which means this is a big deal. I mean, if you ran around cursing 15, 20 things, we'd be in the cursing business. We're not, because you cursed one thing. And that's the thing that, Father, as you reveal in us, we realize if we go back to it, if we go back to fig leaf temple style Things in between us and God, whether it's doves, tables, or fig leaves. They were the same thing. Whether it's man's approval or fig leaves. Whether it's killing lambs, self-sacrifice, shed my own blood, or fig leaves. It's all the same thing. None of it produces any fruit. You cursed that so that we won't go back to it. So I don't know how to land it for everybody in here. But I know you do. And I'm asking the great physician to walk the halls of our heart. And jiggle on the door handles. (laughs) and say, what's in here? Can, I, can, we get, can we get in here? And Father, I pray that we'll pull the keys out. and We'll unlock the door and go, yeah, you can get in here. This is my pain room. This is the room where I'm hurting and I'm really mad at God. This is the room where I'm ticked off at preachers. And this is the room where I don't want to read the Bible anymore. And this is the room where I got molested. and Now I'm angry at this human and that human and this gender and that people group. And these are real things. They're real. They may not be your thing, but they're real things for somebody. And I know I'm the righteousness of God in Christ and I know I'm forgiven and I know you love me and I know all of that and I know I'm a son and I know I'm a daughter. But I've been putting some fig leaves on because I got a lot of pain and I'm covering up some stuff and I know it doesn't have to be and you cursed that. That's the curse. You cursed the stuff that I think I have to put on to be approved of God. In the name of Jesus, drop the fig leaves today. You do not have to do anything to be approved of God. Let him love you. Let the doctor go to work. Let him in the room. It might not be a Sunday morning finished work. That, that finished work might not be a Sunday morning finished work. That might be a, he sees it on a Sunday. He looks around. He comes back in on Monday. He goes to work on your tables. By Tuesday, you realize that one of the fig trees have dried up. This is a three-day process. I think what that means is is that the work that Jesus does to attack the stuff in us that's not real is a process work. It is a work of the great physician getting into our hearts and our homes and our closets and going, it's not going to happen overnight, but don't worry, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I'm right here with you. Daddy loves you, I love you, we're not walking out on you. Just hold my hand. This will hurt a little bit. It's like a little kid going to the pediatrician and you got to keep them distracted with toys because that shot's going to hurt a little bit. Or the doctor saying, look me in the eye. This is going to hurt a little bit, but this is the difference in living and dying. You go, it hurts to talk about that, Pastor. It hurts to let that go. I don't want to let it go. I want to hold on to it. And I know some of us are putting fig leaves on because it's warmer in fig leaves than it is without them, but I pray you'll let the Jesus that curses fig trees go to work on you. I hope you see the difference in you being cursed by God and your figs being cursed. I hope you see the difference. There's a huge difference. You're not cursed by God. People have told you, oh, you're under a curse. Reject that in Jesus name. You are not under a curse. Jesus only cursed one thing, and that's the things that are not you. The things that stand against you, that's been cursed by Jesus. You're not cursed by God, and you're not under grandpa's curse, and your aunt's curse, and the curse that's on your house, and curse over your job. Christ redeemed you from the curse. Stand in your redemption. You're not cursed. This isn't a generational curse. The curse is what you put on that you don't have to put on to lie where you don't have to lie, or to hurt where you no longer have to hurt. Some of this ain't even your fault. It was done to you. It was pain. It was problems. But you put fig leaves on because it was easier to deal with the fig leaf version of yourself than the hurt version of yourself. And I know that this is a process. But let the Holy Spirit start His work in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.